Let us pray together. Oh, Father, this world is increasingly dark and dangerous, and we often feel so alone. Today, show us the bigger picture, as only your word reveals. Uh, Show us where we fit in. Show us where your son fits in. Show us what your grander plan and purpose is. And as you do, bring light to those still living in darkness among us, that they may see the Son of God, believe in him, and be saved from this present wicked age. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The Apostle Paul makes a striking statement in 2 Corinthians chapter 10. If one is living a, a sleepy, humdrum life, these words are rather startling. For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war. Stratuometha, we do not wage war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but divinely powerful for the tearing down of strongholds. What? Weapons? Warfare? Our warfare? Is there a war going on? Are we involved in this war? It sure sounds like it. It sure sounds like Paul thinks that we know about this and know about our involvement and are concerned to be prepared for our involvement. Well, today, in this pivotal portion of Matthew chapter 12, we will learn about this ongoing clash of kingdoms that has been going on for millennia and is going on today and is heading towards its climax. We will hear what God has to say about it and we'll find that, indeed, we are in a war And we stand on one side or the other of only two sides, of only two clashing kingdoms. But which side are we standing on? That's going to be the question. So let us look first, Roman numeral one, at the battling kingdoms. And there are two and only two battling kingdoms. The first we shall look at at is that of Satan and man, that is to say the kingdom of Satan and man. Now, think with me about this for a moment. What were were the words, the first words that we see John the Baptist preaching in Matthew's gospel? He stands up and he says what? Repent for why? The, The kingdom of heaven is at hand, or as I translate, the kingdom of heaven as drawn near. And then when Jesus gets up and preached, what are his first words? Repent the kingdom of the heavens has drawn near. So if the kingdom of the heavens in their preaching has drawn near, what was it before? It was not near. And if it was not near, then what was the status quo? Some other kingdom. Ah, some other kingdom. That's why the announcement, a change was imminent potentially, a change of kingdoms. They were living in a kingdom That's not the kingdom of the heavens, but the kingdom of the heavens had drawn near in the person and ministry of Jesus Christ. Well, this is that kingdom that we're talking about. The kingdom of Satan and man is the kingdom that was in force when Jesus and John stood up to preach and is still in force today. So let's speak first of its genesis. First of all, its genesis in Satan. I call it the kingdom of Satan and man here. Well, how did it start in Satan? And to find that, we don't go to Genesis, surprisingly enough. 
We find it spoken of in Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28 as I read the chapters, and I'm just going to read to you from Ezekiel 28, verses 15 and 17. The prophet had been speaking of the prince of Tyre, and now he turns his eyes to the king of Tyre, the power behind the power. And these words seem to be exalted above that of a normal human being, and and many interpreters, myself included, take it as speaking of Satan and showing what happened to him and how he became Satan. We read in Ezekiel 28:15, "You were blameless in your ways from the day you were created until unrighteousness was found in you." There was a change, and what caused that change? Verse 17a, "Your heart was lofty because of your beauty. You corrupted your wisdom by reason of your splendor." Charles Spurgeon, warning of pride, said very well, pride made an angel the devil as it made a monarch a beast. And so here's Satan's pride. And this is important. This will teach us much about the tenor and the core idea and the driving force to this kingdom. Satan, the first to fall, fell because of beauty, because of pride, because he was enraptured with himself, and he was taken with his own beauty. It was a created beauty, and yet it became his greatest obsession. So its genesis in Satan was pride, pride in his own beauty. He corrupted his wisdom by reason of splendor. How how about its genesis in us? Well, for that, indeed, we do go to Genesis In Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 and 4, this character, the devil, appears in the guise of a serpent or using a serpent. And in verse 1, the serpent said to the woman, Indeed, has God said, you shall not eat from any tree of the garden. And the woman gives a kind of a feeble, half-correct response, and he says, you surely will not die. So here he is calling her, and in fact she joins him, to test the Word of God, to position herself as a judge over the Word of God. And he beckons her to join him in rejecting the authority of God's Word. Now, what is it that motivates putting ourselves and our judgment over the Word of God? What is the name of that vice? Pride. So he is peddling his favorite, he's singing his theme song here. He's peddling his favorite good of all his lines because it's what made him who he is, pride. So he appeals to her to judge the word of God. And you notice his his first sally is not outwardly, openly blasphemous. He just invites her to put God to the test. Does she really approve of what he's done? Does she really agree with what he said? And in joining him, she heads off in the wrong direction. That's the genesis of, of the kingdom there. That's the moment that it began. Began in him and his pride, his rebellion. Began in us when our first father followed this beckoning, this call, and rebelled against God, put his judgment, put his will over the will of God. So that's its genesis. Number two, what is its goal? What's the objective? And simply put, its goal is rob God's glory. Rob God's glory. Satan was smitten with his own beauty. Man and woman were smitten with their own autonomy, their self-rule their right to make their own decisions about God and his word. So the goal then is to rob God's glory because this universe is not big enough for two gods. 
And if we're going to be God, then the glory must go to us. So let's speak of its goal seen in Satan in Isaiah 14, another chapter that speaks, I believe, of Satan's fall. And here, the prophet writes, Isaiah 14, verses 13 and 14, But you said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. I will raise my throne above the stars of God, and I will sit on the mount of assembly in the recesses of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the Most High. So his ambition required God's subjugation and his elevation. He wanted the glory that belongs to God alone. That's what pride yearned for. Pride could never be satisfied with a subordinate role, the role of a creature and a slave to God's will. Pride sought the elevation of himself above God. And it's not enough that they, that they live as peers or as co-equals. He realizes that can't be because God does not share his glory. God calls for glory to him alone. He says expressly, my glory I will not share with another. So if you won't share it, then Satan says, I'll simply take it. But only he said that, right? Oh, no, no, sadly, no. Letter B, its goal in us is just the same. Satan says in Genesis 3, verse 5, For God knows that in the day you eat from it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. This is his sales pitch, that by the exertion of their will over the will of God, they would take the place of God, just like he wanted to do. And they would know on a level, on a par with God. So now what's the sequel to this temptation? The woman looks at the fruit through the eyes of what? The eyes of God and his word? Or her own eyes and her own judgment? The latter. She looks at it, and not only does she not see anything wrong with it, but she sees it looks beautiful and desirable, scrumptious, and like it would put her exactly where she wants to go. And so you see, not content to be a creature, not not content to be subordinate to the will of God, she would put herself as God, as Satan had sought to put himself as God. So it's Genesis is pride and discontentment with being a created servant of God under his word and will. Its goal is to rob God's glory and take it for myself. And so what's its game plan? Now this is very important to understand. This will explain Twitter to you. This will explain the mainstream media to you. This will explain the big talking mouths to you. Because this game plan has never changed. At heart, it's always the same. The tactics change from now and again, from time to time, a little bit. Uh, I might say that, in, in, the, in some of us uh, older folks would say that in the days of our youth, it might have been a cold war, and now it's more of an open war. But the heartbeat's always been the same. The, the, the goal and strategy have always been the same. Broadly, what is the game plan? It's twofold. First, it is to slander God. Secondly, it is to displace God. First, I say it is to slander God. Say, whose name means slanderer? Anyone remember? Devil. The word devil means slanderer. That's what diabolos means, slanderer. 
So the goal is slander. Now, how does Satan present himself in Genesis 3? What do his first words to Eve imply? Has God really told you you can't eat from any of the fruit in the garden? What's he suggesting about God? God's cruel. He's unloving. He's unfair. He's oppressive. And then when he goes on to say it, when Eve says, oh, well, we, shouldn't, we can eat anything except this fruit. If we eat it or touch it, we'll die. And then his word is, you will not die. So then God's either incompetent or he's a liar. Now, seeing how Satan works here, you see how he always works. He always does the same thing. What does he do in Job chapters 1 and 2? Appears before God and God says, have you seen my servant Job? Righteous, is chewing evil. And what does Satan say? He only loves you because you pay him to. If you let bad things happen to him, he'd curse you to your face. Well, what's the subtext there? You're not worth loving. Nobody would love you for who you are. Nobody would fear you for who you are. What is that? Blasphemy. Slander. Demeaning God, exalting himself. So, uh, you see in Matthew 4 as well, where he comes to Jesus and appeals to Jesus to exert his will over God's, because God's not feeding him and God's not glorifying him like he should. And if Jesus just exerted his will, he could have what he needed and wanted with his own power and without going to the cross. What's that? It's slander of God and God's will. And so you see it again and again. This is, this is what he does. He wants to make God look bad. He wants to speak evil. He wants to get people to think evil and low and uh, demeaning thoughts about God. And the second is displace God. Make God small and mean enough that then I can take his place. Now we see that in Ezekiel 28 where he says, I will make myself like the most high. And we see that in Genesis 3 where he tells our first parents, you shall be like God. So, Slander God and take his place. That's the twofold broad agenda. And how does he achieve this? What is the specific game plan? Again, twofold. First, deny and pervert God's word. Second, replace God's word with lies. Deny and pervert God's word. This has always been the case. Satan has always produced substitutes and knockoffs. And things that are just a little off of true, uh, but enough so that we're pointed away from God and in the wrong direction. Uh, Spurgeon said something like that it takes real discernment. Real discernment is not just telling truth from error, but truth from almost truth. <laughs> and, and so he has come along in a great many ways with, with a, a, a pantheon of idols who may just each of them have one of the attributes of God in a perverted way. Well, worship that and that will give you better crops. Worship that and you'll have more children. Worship that and you'll have victory over your enemies. And today it may not be as crude, although it, it often is just that crude, but today it's philosophical and ideological idols. Self-worth, self-will, self-determination, self, self, self. It's no great change. Uh, it's a denial of the word of God, which says, well, really, you know what the best thing to do is? Here's the best thing. Start off fearing God, which is to say, take your place as the creature of God who begins with God's word, not judges God's word, but starts with God's word. And then love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. 
And Satan says, yeah, not that. That's not the way to fulfillment. Start with the fear of self. Start with revering yourself. And in the, with this latest invention in the last five minutes, you can ask yourself if you feel like a man or a woman. Don't be distracted by what you see in the mirror. Don't be distracted by the entire history of the world's biology uh, globe, you know, the globe wide and pole to pole. Don't be distracted by that. If you feel something different, why you go with that? Why? Because you're as God. Because you're as God, not God, not your creator. Shake off the shackles of creation. Shake off the shackles of your DNA and your chromosomes. Just because God made him that way doesn't mean you have to be that way. So, you see, it is deny and pervert God's word. No, there's not one way to salvation. There's many ways. And besides, who needs to be saved? Seems to me we need to be saved from religion. And this is, this is what Satan says. This is his slander and his denial and perversion of God's word. And replace God's words with lies. Because we, we are thinking creatures, so he gives us things to think. They're just lies. They're, just, they're slanders. They're perversions. Uh, they flatter us. They empower us. They validate us. They verify us. They affirm us. And they lead us to hell under the wrath of God. But that is the game plan. That is how we're going to slander God, rob him of his glory, take his place by perverting his word and by replacing it with lies. So there is the kingdom of Satan and man. Now let's speak of the kingdom of God and Christ. And I want to clarify We've studied the kingdom of God in the past, and I've told you of various aspects of the kingdom of God. I want you to understand that I'm speaking here of the messianic kingdom of God, not of the universal eternal kingdom of God. God has always been king. God always rules over everything and through everything. Everything is proceeding according to his plan exactly. But the messianic kingdom is the kingdom where Messiah is, in fact, sitting on the throne and ruling over this planet and enforcing God's will and God's, uh, God's rule. So, uh, in general, what is its genesis? Well, I'm going to approach it by giving you two garden snapshots. <laughs> two garden snapshots. What garden snapshots? Well, first letter A, the Garden of God, and that's Eden. Genesis 1, 26 through 28, God creates man and woman, man and woman, as his image to represent him, to be images of God here representing that he rules over this planet. And there is mediators. They mediate his rule. He gives them the charge to rule over the planet, rule over the birds and the fish and everything that creeps and, and walks and flies and flutters and wiggles across the face of the earth. That's their kingdom. That's what Genesis 1 is. It's the creation of the kingdom of God. The stage is set piece by piece, particle by particle, and then the rulers are put in place in God's image, meant to rule for God over this kingdom. And we see it specifically in chapter 2 that Adam's first assignment in this grand, uh, this grand um, adventure is in the Garden of Eden that he's supposed to protect and he's supposed to cultivate. He's given those two tasks. And then he's taken from outside that garden, put in that garden, and told to get to work and then Eve is created within that garden under his care and under his protection, meant to be led by him and to join him. So that's the beginning of that kingdom of God. However, you say, well, that was short-lived. Yes, it was. In terms of the Bible, it was really short-lived. 
Genesis 1 and 2 uh, depict it, and Genesis 3 shatters it. So it wasn't a very long kingdom in, in terms of the literature of the Bible. They fell. Uh, they, as I often say when I mention the fall, fall hardly seems like a strong enough word for what they did. They face-planted. They, they plummeted. They crashed. It was devastating what they did. And it just made ruling for God extremely difficult because of the monkey wrench that sin threw into everything, thorns and thistles and death and misery and war and murder and hatred and division and violence. All this came from their decision to put themselves over God, which of course couldn't be done and the mere attempt was absolutely suicidal and absolutely ruinous. So that's the first garden snapshot and it's a snapshot of a very short-lived kingdom mediated by man. The first man, the first Adam, let's say, the first Adam fell, and with us, with him we fell. But then comes the last Adam, the second man. New man, head of a new humanity. And we see just sort of a microcosm of what this is in the second garden snapshot, and that's the garden of Gethsemane. That's a lot to put in that blank. Just do your best. But if you want to be reminded, it is G-E-T-H-S-E-M-A-N-E. Or you could just put geth, etc. if you like, and you'll know what you mean if you then write in Matthew 26, verses 39 and 42. And you may think, well, that's an odd place to go. Why would you go there for the second snapshot regarding the kingdom of God? Well, let me read to you Matthew 26, 39. This is the Lord Jesus on the night of his betrayal. And he, he went a little beyond them, Peter, James, and John, fell on his face and prayed, saying, Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. Verse 42, he went away again a second time and prayed, saying, My Father, if this cannot pass away unless I drink it, your will be done. Now, what words do you think caused me to read those two verses particularly? Not my will, but your will. Your will be done. Do you see now how that is the exact opposite of the kingdom of man and of Satan? Do you see that? In the kingdom of man and Satan, the prayer is, not thy will, but mine be done. And that's the whole motivating thought and force of that kingdom. Not your will, but my will be done. And here comes the last Adam, the head of the new humanity, facing tests that the first Adam never even began to touch and walking through every one, a victor. And the heart is seen in this, in this snapshot, where the Son of God, who's taken on human nature and is now God and man incarnate, fully God, fully man, as a man, as the head of the new humanity, the elect, he stands before God, faced with the most horrible thing that a human being has ever faced, and his prayer is, not my will, but yours be done. So here is the head of humanity submitting himself fully to the will of God, and that is the genesis of that kingdom. This is why he's the king of that kingdom, because that's the heartbeat of that kingdom. Let's go on to see that. What is its goal? Well, its goal is the glory of God. The goal of the kingdom of man and Satan is to rob God of his glory and take his place. The goal of this kingdom is the glory of God. 
I'll read you Philippians 2, 9 through 11, but you're always welcome to uh, turn there. Philippians 2, 9 through 11. Jesus did not count equality with God a thing to be clung to, but emptied himself, took the form of a servant, humbled himself to the death on the cross. And then we read verse 9, Therefore God also, therefore, because he prayed, not my will but thine be done. Therefore, because as Jesus said, my food is not to do my will but to do the will of him who sent me. Therefore, because Jesus who said, I came to do the will of him who sent me and to complete it. Therefore, because he did that, therefore, God also highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. What are the next words? To the glory of God the Father. So you see again, this is the exact opposite of the kingdom of Satan and man. Jesus submits himself to God's will, therefore he's put on top of everything under the Father in the the dispensation of the kingdom, and it is to the glory of God the Father. So that's its goal, and what's its game plan? Well, we could spend many sermons on that, but I'm just going to go to the ultimate game plan, which is the kingdom of God. In Revelation 19, verses 11, 13, and 15, again, turn there or listen to me just as you wish, just as serves you best. But the game plan is the the coming and the uh, ascendancy and the absolute rule of the kingdom of God. And here's what's going to happen. Then I saw heaven opened, John says, and behold, a white horse, and he who sits on it is called the exact opposite of Satan faithful and true. He who sits on it is called faithful and true, and in righteousness he judges and wages war. And then verse 13, and being clothed with a garment dipped in blood, his name is also called the word of God. And verse 15, and from his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he may strike down the nations. So just like we heard when we read together Psalm 2, he may strike down the nations and he will rule them with a rod of iron. And he treads the winepress of the wrath of the rage of God, the Almighty. That is the coming of the kingdom of God. Has that happened? That has not happened. (laughs) That has not happened. That is future. So these two kingdoms, you see, could not be more different. And they are in conflict. They are in constant conflict. From Genesis 3 to this very day, these kingdoms are in conflict. But in the end, God's kingdom will rule. God's kingdom will prevail. And Jesus, then back to the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus depicts his ministry as a critical, decisive battle in this age-long war. And that's where Matthew 12 fits in. And that's, that's the backdrop of all this. It's, it's the backdrop of the whole gospel, but particularly of chapters 11 and 12. The clash of the two kingdoms. And that's why... Our Lord Jesus speaks in terms of two kingdoms, Satan's kingdom and his. The Pharisees, great geniuses that they are, as far as you know, that's their thought anyway, their their, uh, solution is, well, he does this by the power of Satan. What does Jesus say? Well, if Satan's casting out Satan, then what? His kingdom is divided against itself. 
Yes, that's the one kingdom. But he says, you know, if you're going to take, take the house of a strong man, first you've got to bind the strong man. That's his power. That's his strength in what he's showing. So let's talk about that next. I wanted to look at that with you. Take a closer look at that. Roman numeral two, binding Satan. In Jesus speaking of the clash of these two kingdoms, speaks of the binding of Satan. So he says in verse 25, every kingdom divided against itself is made desolate. Every city or house divided against itself will not stand. And if Satan casts out Satan, he's divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? And if I myself by Beelzebul cast out demons, your sons, by who do they cast them out? On account of this, they themselves will be your judges. But if by the Spirit of God I myself cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has overtaken you. See? Two kingdoms. And in the Holy Spirit's empowering of him to cast out demons, the kingdom of God is right there in him. So the issue is, what are they going to do about him? Then he goes on to say in verse 29, Oh, how is someone able to enter into the house of the strong man and to seize his vessels unless first he binds the strong man and then he will completely seize his house? Well, I wanted to look at that closely with you because that is subject to a whole lot of abuse in two particular ways, by, both by spiritually wildly irresponsible people and by otherwise very responsible people. So let's look at those two things as I talk about... Uh, Roman numeral two is binding Satan. And letter A is, let's talk about what it is not. And I'm going to talk about two particular things that it is not, that Jesus is not talking about. First of all, it is not something we are told to do. It's not something we are taught to do. It's not something we are described as doing. I hope I'm plain about that. I want to be because it's the teaching of charismatics and they all run around all the time, binding Satan, binding Satan, binding Satan. Who do they think they are? I guess Jesus, because Jesus says it's something he does. But let's talk about that. It's not something we are told to do or taught to do or shown doing. Now, what is this passage about? You've studied this with me, I, I, I trust. So what is Jesus talking about? Is he talking about the dynamics of normal Christian living? Well, no, there's no Christian living yet. There's no church yet. The church hasn't even been started. So is he talking about the apostles at this point? Well, no, they do what they do because Jesus gave them the ability to do it for their special mission. And are we apostles? Better be a quick no. Hard, hard pass on that. No, sir, no, ma'am. We are not any of us apostles. There are not any apostles alive today. Anybody who says he's an apostle is way too young. Is you, you, one of the requirements is you have to have been an eyewitness of Jesus' resurrection. There are no apostles today. He gave them the ability to pass out as part of the mission of preaching the kingdom of God present in him. So it's not, is, is it about the dynamics of Christian living? No. Is it about the ministry of the, apostle, the apostles? No. Well, what is he talking about then? Himself. What's the issue? Who am I and how am I doing this? That's the issue. They're saying he does it by Beelzebul. He's not talking about the apostles. He's talking about himself. And he portrays himself 
as the strong man who's able to bind Satan. So it is about him. Now, further, let me ask another question. This is a very important question. This is one that would would put the end to so much false teaching if we could just learn to ask this question and know the answer to it. Not just ask it, but know the answer. Here's the question. Do we find the letters to Christian churches describing how to do this? No, we do not. Paul instructs Pastor Timothy and Titus. Does he tell them how to hold classes in binding Satan? No, he does not. Do we read about that in the epistles? No, we, we, we do not. As we read the book of Acts, we don't see that language used of the apostles. We aren't told to do it. It's found zero times in the epistles. So I would give it as much priority as the epistles do, which is zero. It's not part of Christian living. It's not something we're to do. But let me give you an even, if possible, an even greater concern of mine. This whole business of talking to Satan, that never ends well. Why don't we get that? That never... Okay, when's the first conversation that a human being ended, uh, entered into with Satan? What was that first conversation? How did that end? Not well. Not well. But now because we're so big and we think we're little gods and we all this nonsense, we're going to talk to Satan? I say talk to God. And you want to talk about Satan to God? That's great. You do that. Talk about Satan to God. Talk to God. Don't talk to Satan. This is a bad, bad idea. What Jesus is talking about here, like most things in the Bible, is not about us. It's about Jesus. So secondly, it's not something God has yet fully and finally done. Now, this is an idea of people who are spiritual giants. They have a system and an understanding of the Bible according to which they think that we are in the millennium now. They, they believe that the millennium is the spiritual reign of Christ. And there's a few different shadings to this. It's his reign in heaven or it's his reign here. They think the kingdom of God is present here. And so you say, well, what do they do with Revelation 20? Well, turn there with me. Let's actually do take a look at that because we're going to come back to it in just a moment. So I always say this is one of the two easiest books in the Bible to find, given that a concordance is not a book. So if you don't go to the first book, go to the last book, and go to the next to next to last chapter. And so looky here. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, having the key of the abyss and a great chain in his hand, and he laid hold of Satan. I'll shorten it a little bit. He laid hold of Satan and bound him. Well, there it is. He bound him for a thousand years, and he threw him into the abyss and shut it and sealed it over him so that he would not deceive the nations anymore until the thousand years were finished. So they say numbers are symbolic, and the number thousand just means a long, long time. And this is that time. This is a symbolic vision of Satan now bound by the cross of Jesus not to deceive the nations, and we're living in the kingdom of God now. To which... My, my sarcastic response is, well, how do you like the kingdom of God so far? How, how do you like Satan not deceiving the nations so far? How's that working out for you? Well, of course, the fact is we don't see any lessening in the deceiving of the nations at all. Since we, we do see the gospel spreading, but it spreads into great error. And even after their revivals, error reasserts itself, doesn't it? How's converted China doing? How's converted India doing? And so forth and so on. So, no, um, 
It doesn't look like that. And of course, in terms of interpretation, that's a very poor interpretation of this text. This is not a symbol. John says he sees this. He sees the thousand years reign with Satan being bound. And, and here's two other questions. One of them, I think, is a near death blow. And then the other one, I think, is a death blow. What does 1 Peter 5.8 say about Satan? Your adversary, the devil, is not a great trouble because he's bound right now? Is that what Satan, what Peter says? He's roaming around. He doesn't sound very bound to me. He's roaming around like a roaring lion seeking, lion seeking someone to devour. But even more, if Satan is bound because of the cross, how does he get loosed? Does the cross lose its power for a little while? So I think that's a very serious problem with, with believing that he's bound because of what Jesus did on the cross. The cross never loses its power. So scripture says he will be in the future bound, but for a thousand years. So this is not that. He's not talking about that. But we've talked about what it isn't then, so now let's talk about what it is, letter B. What it is. Well, in the Gospels, very plainly and simply, binding the strong man is Jesus displaying his kingly power. And it's just like everything else he does and says, he's showing that he is the fit, qualified, messianic king. He fulfills prophecy. He lives according to the word of God. And he does the powers of the coming kingdom. Gives sight to the blind, raises the dead, loosens the prisoners, defeats the powers of hell. Controls nature. Stops storms with a word. Stops waves with a word. So you see, this is all just part of that whole picture. It's about Jesus and what he did during his days on earth to show he's the king. He's the king of God's kingdom. So he is establishing his right and fitness to be the king of the kingdom of God. And it's not about our daily squabbles of mortification and sanctification. Go back to the epistles. What do they teach about how we should grow in grace. John 8, 31, continue in the word of Christ. Romans 8, put to death the deeds of the flesh. You know, Romans 6, count ourselves dead to sin, present ourselves and our bodies as, as servants of God and, and weapons of righteousness. This isn't exciting and doesn't make TV shows, but this is, this is the New Testament. See, this is the the bread and circus crowd wants exciting new doctrines that have never been taught before. You know why they've never been taught before? Because they're error. They're they're not in Scripture. But what you read in Scripture is about the daily left foot, right foot, left foot, right foot walk of Christian discipleship. And that's what it is. And what does it say about Satan? Uh, Romans, uh, sorry, Ephesians 6 describes our conflict. What does it say about us binding Satan? Let's see, zero, take away zero, carry the zero, zero. But it tells us to protect ourselves so that we might stand and do the will of God. So, that's uh, what it is in the Gospels. And what is it in the future? In the future, I ask you to go to Revelation 2 and 20 and stay there. In the future, it is the first implementation of Satan's final defeat. Now, we read verses 1 through 3. Or he's bound for a thousand years. Now, drop your eyes to verse 7. I'm reading from the Legacy Standard Bible. And when the thousand years are finished, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations. So you see, for a while they're not, and now they are. And what's his purpose? To gather them together for the war. 
The number of them is like the sand of the seashore. Even then, even after the thousand years reign of Christ, he's able to find fools born during that time who will buy his lion. And they come and assail the beloved city. And, and how does that battle go? Rather anticlimactic. Fire comes down from heaven and devours them. Short fight. And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are also. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. And that is Satan's final end. And that is the final end of everyone who joins him in his kingdom. It's prepared for the devil and his angels, Matthew 25, 41 says. But the lost are thrown in there too for eternity. Day and night forever and ever. So, then let's come finally, Roman numeral 3, to a, you could say, an existential question, a question that affects our right here and our right now. And that is the issue of battlefield options. What are my choices? I don't have a choice of not being in the war. Uh, to get out of the war, you would need to leave creation, and there are no tickets being sold for that journey. Uh, <laughs> we're in creation wherever we go. Everywhere we go, there we are, and there creation is. So we're in it. So what are our options? Let's first talk about the case. And I want to bring up a theme that maybe has not stood out for you. Hopefully it, it will now. The case is that Jesus has depicted this as a period of conflict. We've seen this actually again and again in the Gospel of Matthew. It's behind that first sermon. If the kingdom of heaven is at hand, then again, we are in battle conditions. We're under another kingdom that must be displaced. So it's right there in the first preaching. But even more, doesn't it come up in the, in the Sermon on the Mount, the fact that we're in a battle in hostile territory? It talks about the blessing of those who are persecuted for righteousness, whose names are cast out as evil. And he, he talks about living in trying times. When he sends the twelve out on mission in chapter 10, what, what does he say to them? He says, go keep proclaiming the, kingdoms of the, the kingdom of the heavens is drawn near. Do the works of the kingdom. I've given you that authority and power. And then verse 14, whoever does not accept you, Go out, shake the dust off your feet. It'll be more bearable for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment than for them. This is the prosecution of the, of the war. They're calling people to change sides. That's what repent means. I mean, that's one of the implications of repenting. In repenting, I deny myself. I deny seeking to displace God and take his glory. And I submit myself to God and accept his Savior and his way of salvation. I change sides. So he says, but if they don't accept your witness, if they reject your preaching, it'll be better for Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment than they. And then verse 16, I send you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. You'll be hated by all, verse 22. But he who endures to the end will be saved. And they'll persecute you from city and city, city to city, verse 23. But you won't finish the cities of Israel until the Son of Man comes. That is going to be the end of this uh, phase of the battle. When he comes, he says, verse 34, Don't imagine that I came to cast peace upon the earth. I did not come to cast peace, but instead a sword. For I came to divide a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, a bride against her mother-in-law. Man's enemies will be those in his own household. It's a time of conflict, and Jesus came to that and called us to it with him. Uh, what does he say after John's question and his response in chapter 11? 
And John evidently is troubled because he's not seeing any of the coming of the kingdom of heaven happening, and he's languishing in prison. And Jesus reminds him through his, uh, his uh, uh, disciples of the works that he's doing. And then he turns after they've left, and he says, from the days of John the Immerser until just now, the kingdom of the heavens suffers violence, and violent ones want to seize it. This, as I told you, is the false teachers and religious leaders of the day who want to control the narrative. They want to control what's going on. They want it done their way. Because, though their mouths say they're servants of God, they're in their hearts, they're servants of the kingdom of Satan. What's the proof? They reject God's son. They reject the king. If nothing else showed it, that would show their true allegiance. So, Finally, he says uh, that those who reject the gospel of the kingdom are going to fall under judgment. Verse 20, he began to reproach the cities uh, in which most of these acts of power were done because they did not repent. Woe to you. He's not saying beatitudes anymore. There's no blesseds. His last beatitude is to John. Blessed is the one who does not stumble in me. But now it's woes because they are rejecting the king. So they're staying in the kingdom of Satan. Woe to you, Chorazin, and they will share the judgment of the kingdom of Satan. Woe to you, Bethsaida, you Capernaum, you won't be exalted into heaven, will you? You will descend into Hades. It will be more bearable for the land of Sodom in the day of judgment than for you. So in this conflict, there are just two kingdoms, and only one of them is going to prevail. So the question to us then is what are our choices Letter B, our choices. And Jesus lays out our choices in Matthew 12, verse 30. And how many do you count? There's just two. There's just two choices. He who is not with me is against me, and he who does not gather together with me scatters. Those are the two choices. And if we want to be with the kingdom of God, we must be with Jesus. And if we're not with Jesus then we're with the kingdom of man and of Satan. And we will share the destiny, the decreed, prophesied end of that kingdom. So the first thing I'd like to point out about this verse, number one, here's the first choice, with me. That's the first choice, with me. He who is not with me is against me, and he who does not gather together with me scatters. What word do you hear three times in that verse? Me, me, me. As long as I have breath, I will never tire of reminding you and pointing out to you the issue is always Jesus. Start to finish, the issue is all Jesus. Everything hinges on Jesus. Where did I get that from? Why? I got that from Jesus. I got that from Jesus and from his apostles. From who he says, who prophecy says he would be, who he says he was, who the apostles say he was. Me. The issue is me. Our stance towards him. What do we do with Jesus? He who's not with me is against me. So the first choice is being with him. What does it mean then to be with him? I want to make sure that's as clear as I can. Make it, and I'll make it clear from the Gospel of Matthew, rather than going uh, the Romans road or any other route. From Matthew's Gospel, what does it mean to be with Jesus? First of all, Matthew 10.32. It means to confess allegiance to him. Therefore, everyone of the sort who will confess me before men, I myself also will confess him before my Father who is in the heavens. 
Matthew 10, 32. Confess allegiance. Confess me before men. Say out loud in front of everybody, I'm with Jesus. Jesus is my Lord. Jesus is my Savior. I get what I think from Jesus. I find out how to live from Jesus. I confess Jesus. Your lips and your life, first of all, to confess allegiance to him. There's this nonsense that people can be saved without naming the name of Christ. Uh, if there is, it's got to be someplace else in the Bible, because I've read it all a few times, and I have found it nowhere that there's any way of saving but beyond the name of Jesus Christ, confessing Jesus. And that's b- before death. There's, there's another bit of tricky false doctrine. Well, you, you give it a second chance after death. What did he say? Confess me before men. Right here, right now. Secondly, it is to prioritize him above everything. To prioritize him above everything. 1032. Sorry, uh, 1037. He who is fond of father or mother above me is not worthy of me. And he who is fond of son or daughter above me is not worthy of me. These are the closest relations. We're to honor father and mother. And Jesus says, not as much as me. You honor father and mother more than me, you're not worthy of me. So secondly, it is to prioritize him above all other human relations. Third, it is to die to self and follow him. 10, 38, and 39. It is to die to self and follow him. 10, 38, and 39. Whoever does not take his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. He who finds his soul will lose it. He who loses his soul on account of me will find it. You take up your cross only for one reason. Not as a piece of jewelry, but as a place to die. And the kingdom of man is the exact opposite. Everything's about me. I'm number one. The kingdom of God is that, the opposite of that. I die to myself, I take up my cross, so that I might follow him. So that I might follow him. I don't seek my soul, I give it up for his sake. Fourth, it is to come to him, Take his yoke and learn of him. 11, 28, and 29. Come to him, take his yoke, learn of him. Where do I get that? 11, 28. Come here to me, all who are laboring and have been loaded down, and I myself will give you rest. Take up my yoke upon you and learn from me, because I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. It's to Jesus. Don't come to the baptismal tank. Don't come to the church. Don't come to the denomination. Don't even come to a system of doctrine. Come to Jesus. He'll teach you doctrine. He'll send you to the tank. And he'll tell you to go to church. But go to him. Go to him first, second, third, and fourth. It's, it, today, in your Christian life, it is as much about Jesus as the first time you whispered his name and called on him to save you. And it will never be any different. Come to him. Take his yoke. And learn of him. So that's what it is to be with me. And what's the second choice? Oh, there's only one other choice. Against me. And how do we do this? (laughs) How do you be against Jesus? I want to be as plain about that as I can. Well, let's start with this verse. What do you do to be against Jesus? Nothing. Wait, wait, wait. How can I say that? Why did I say that? Because he says, if you're not with me, you're against me. That that's the only other option that's left. So to be with him, I have to do something. But to be against him, 
Nothing. I'm born a citizen of the kingdom of Satan. I live in the kingdom of Satan. I walk as a citizen of the kingdom of Satan. What do I have to do to be against Jesus? Not one thing. And when I hear the gospel, don't do anything. When I read the New Testament, don't respond in any way. I don't need to do anything. I don't need to say anything. He who's not with me is against me. It can be utterly passive. What does he say in uh, 1120? Or what do we read, I should say? We read, he began to reproach the cities in which most of his acts of power were done. Why? Because they did not repent. Wait, what horrible act and, and, and blasphemy did they do? Nothing. They just didn't repent. They just didn't repent. They didn't do anything. It can be absolutely passive. Do you get that? So you say, well, I, you know, I just don't, I want to hear all sides, and I just really don't want to commit myself. I, I, I great, think great things about the work of Christians and the church and Jesus, fine, fine person. I have nothing in the world against him. You will go to hell with Satan because you're not with him. You see, you don't have to do anything. There's, you can be absolutely passive, and you're against him. Secondly, it can be dithery and noncommittal. Where do I get that? Chapter 12, verse 23. The crowds kept being astounded, and they kept saying, can this man be the son of David? And at this point, you kind of want to say to them, you think? <laughs> you think maybe? You're beginning to suspect this could be the case? But this is, they're not anywhere beyond just wondering, could he be? And remember to the Pharisees, even that was not okay. Don't even ask that question. But they're just dithery and noncommitted. And, and Jesus is speaking to, the, to, him, to them when he says this. If you're not with me, you're against me. Thirdly, it can be open and hostile. And who's our model of that? Well, it's the Pharisees. Who, seeing this panorama technicolor display of the works of the Spirit of God, say, he does this by the power of Beelzebul. That is an open and hostile display. Those are three ways of being against Jesus. Do nothing, dither around in indecision, or come out hostily against him. But it all amounts to not being with him. Because to be with him is to gather people for the kingdom of God. Notice that that's part of being with him. He, he doesn't gather with me, scatters. So when I'm with him, then I turn and I tell others to be with him. The, the mark of somebody who, you know, the sort of person who says, well, I believe in Jesus, but that's my own personal religion I just keep to myself and I don't talk to other people about it. Then you're not with Jesus, really. You haven't thought through who he is. You, don't, you haven't thought through what people need and, and what he means to that, your role in that. But even more, he says, he who doesn't gather with me scatters. I'm for him, and I tell others they must be for him. I tell others I confess him, I preach him, I hold him out, I beckon others to come. So, here's what we call the takeaway, and I'm going to make it as sharp and simple as I possibly can. There is, as we've seen, a war going on between two rival kingdoms. Both means to destroy the other for all time and for good. Each means the destruction of the other. And every single one of us in this room is in one of those kingdoms or the other. There's no Switzerland. There's no Switzerland. There's just the two kingdoms. One kingdom is going down, and that's Satan's kingdom. 
Why? Well, let's just start out with the fact that he's a creature and God is the creator. So you do the math. In that conflict, who is going to come out on top? The creator. Which kingdom then are you in? Jesus has shown his kingdom and in every test he's cleaned Satan's clock. There's never even been a contest. He is the king of the kingdom that will prevail. Which kingdom are you in? If you've done absolutely nothing, if you've not responded to the gospel you've heard, you've grown up in the church, come with your parents every Sunday, heard Jesus preach and never done a thing about it. You come with your wife every Sunday because that's what a good husband does or your husband and you've never yourself done anything, well, then you are in the kingdom of Satan still. He who's not with me is against me, Jesus says. And then that means that you are going to share the fate of Satan's kingdom. You share Satan's fate, and as being in his kingdom, you share it with him. What does Matthew 25, 41 says? The king says to those on his left, depart from me, you accursed into the eternal fire which has been prepared for the devil and his angels. Prepared for them, but you go there with them as citizens of his kingdom. You're not in Jesus' kingdom if you have Christian parents. You're not in Jesus' kingdom if you have Christian friends. You're not in Jesus' kingdom if you are married to a Christian. Any more than you're a car if you sit in your garage all night. You're only a Christian if you yourself repent Call on Christ to save you. Submit to him as your Lord. Deny yourself, pick up your cross. Come to Jesus. Throw yourself on his mercy. Come to him. This is the only way to be in Jesus' kingdom. Come to him and he will give you rest. He will wash away your sins and accept you as a child of God and make you a citizen of his kingdom. So that as we read in Colossians 1, of all Christians, we've been transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of the Son of His love. That's one of the many things He does for all who come to Him in faith. So, where are you? If you see you're in the wrong place, God grant you grace and mercy to flee now to the Lord Jesus. Let us pray. Father, thank You for this word, this sharp word, sharper than any two-edged sword. But... ineffectual unless the Holy Spirit of God send it to the hearts of people with power. And this is my prayer now. My prayer is that the Holy Spirit will take these words of God and use them to encourage and strengthen and embolden and impassion those who know Jesus to serve him and live his kingdoms and to gather with him. And that those who don't know him will find themselves shattered, stricken, humbled, and seeing that they must flee to him for life immediately. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.